Disclaimer. Here at Discord and Rhyme, we aim to showcase the wild, wonderful spectrum of popular music by featuring albums from a broad range of eras, genres, and perspectives. However, this means that we sometimes discuss music somewhat at cross-purposes with listeners' aesthetic preferences, such as this... Does my stop really look so good? Am I doing it the way you think I should? This... Picture, picture, This... And this. Look up at the sky. With today's album, Captain Beefheart and his magic band's 1969 double LP, Trout Mask Replica, we breach a whole new threshold of esoteric, as the following Battlestar Galactica style smash preview will illustrate. Where man can stand by another man. Okay, not that last one. I'm Chris Willie Williams, and you have been forewarned. This is Discord and Bulbous. everybody welcome to discord and rhyme a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song we're on both twitter and instagram at discord pod and you can find show notes and our full episode archive at discordpod.com you can subscribe to us on itunes stitcher spotify and generally where podcasts are found and you can also subscribe by email at discordpod.com contact i'm phil maddox and i'm here today with rich Bennell, mike defabio and dan watkins this week, I'd like to start by thanking our newest Patreon donor, Franco. Thank you very much, Franco. If you like what you hear and you feel like throwing some change in the tip jar, you can visit us at patreon.com slash discordpod. Finally, as of this week, we've been around for a whole year. Woo! Woo! Yay! And for our birthday, we'd really love some iTunes ratings and reviews and also a pony. I too would like a pony. I hate anyone who had a pony growing up. <laughs> I had a pony! <laughs> We all had ponies. Mister, won't you please help my pony? I think it's as long. All right. So done with the Seinfeld references for the week. probably, And the ween references. And the ween references. No, there's more ween references coming. I have one planned for later. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh. oh. So um, our host this week is Dan, and I hear he has an actual 100% real trout mask for us. Well, it's really made out of paper. So uh, what do you got picked out for us this week, Dan? I have Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band's 1969 landmark album, Trout Mask Replica. 
oh, that sounds nice and easygoing. This should be an easy one. I wanted a real trout mask. <laughs> Those are expensive. Fine. <laughs> they don't smell very good either. All right. So, hey, Dan, why are you hitting us with this one? Well, it is indeed what you might call a polarizing album. Uh, it's been hailed as a masterpiece and dismissed as unlistenable garbage in equal measures. Um, while I'm not going to really try to change anyone's opinion on the album, I do want to talk about what actually went into making it and explain why people like me actually enjoy listening to it. There's a misconception that a lot of people have when they first hear the album that it's just a bunch of guys who can't actually play their instruments just playing random nonsense. But the truth is, an unbelievable amount of thought and work was put into the album. It's not just like Philosophy of the World by the Shags. Like, it's actually a very well thought out but chaotic album. A bunch of random noise it is not. So I want to kind of dig into what makes it interesting and why I actually like to listen to it. And it's a big year for Trap Mass Replica, right, Dan? It is approaching its 50th anniversary. I think like just this month, actually. On my birthday. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Happy <laughs> birthday, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it's going to be a big year for that in general, as you know, the we are approaching the 50th anniversary of the end of the 60s. So all of those classic 60s albums are, you know, hitting the half a century mark. Yep. We're all getting old. Oh. Yep. <laughs> all right. So. So, Dan, uh, what's your personal history with uh, Captain Beefheart and Trout Mask Replica? Well, as a big Frank Zappa fan growing up, my first exposure to Captain Beefheart was his guest vocal spot on the song Billy the Pimp. I'm a little pimp with my hair gas pack, hair candy pants with my shoes shine black. Got a little lady walk that street, telling all the boys it's But it was his appearance on another Zappa album, Bongo Fury, where I was really confronted with his brand of weirdness. Uh, it, it's Bongo Fury is a 1975 live album documenting a tour of the mothers with Captain Beefheart. And while it's definitely a Zappa album, it's Beefheart's given a few moments to shine and they are indeed odd moments. And it was a challenge at first, but I grew to love it. And uh, after I had basically run out of Frank Zappa albums to buy, uh, I decided it was time to just go straight into Trout Mask Replica. And I had been warned that it was near unlistenable, but I forged ahead. And to be honest, I really kind of liked it from the first listen. Uh, you know, I didn't really get it. I still don't really get it. But uh you know, it's it's weird, but it's weird in a way that I find exciting and really kind of just maybe want to keep listening to it and try to understand what was going on. And, you know, there are a lot of other famous difficult albums that I've grappled with a lot more than this. Like to me, like this was easier to get into than Bitches Brew and hmm. like Mr. Bungle. Oh, Disco Volantes. <laughs> That's a tough listen. Yeah. <laughs> but I still haven't quite wrapped my head around that one. Yeah. It's it's worth it if once you once you can wrap your brain around it, but um, but yeah, I, somehow I just wanted to keep revisiting this album, just understand how did they do this. I have a similar history in that, like, except the first thing I heard from Captain Beefheart was actually not Willie the Pimp; it was Muffin Man from the <laughs> Bongo Fury album. Mm. Because I had a copy of Strictly Commercial, the very best of Frank Zappa, which for some reason included Muffin Man. <laughs> Yeah, that was the first Zappa I ever heard. Yep. It belongs in there, I think. 
So I got a bunch of Zappa albums. Um, then I read this magazine article that listed like classic albums from 1969, which wrote about Trout Mask Replica and how great and classic it was and how controversial it was and all this stuff. And I eventually, I didn't get it right away, but several years later I picked it up and um, I did not like it very much at first. And, you know, Dan has talked about, you know, very non-inviting albums like Bitches Brew by Miles Davis, Disco Volante by Mr. Bungle. Like, weirdly, I had no difficulty getting into either of those. I just liked those right off. But Trout Mask Replica, like, still remains kind of a tough nut to crack. Um, I like it. It's an interesting album. That's that's something that I think everyone will agree on. The album's interesting. How much people personally get out of it really kind of, I think, depends on how much you're on the captain's wavelength. How about you, Mike? Uh, what's your history with Captain Beefheart here? Well, the first time I ever heard of either Captain Beefheart or Trout Mask Replica was when I was uh, reading a review somebody wrote of the King Crimson album Lizard, claiming <laughs> yeah. that the two albums were entirely unique and incomparable masterpieces. And that, Really? That, yeah, and that uh, that piqued my curiosity a bit. And as I started to get more into Frank Zappa, I started seeing Captain Beefheart mentioned a lot and Trout Mask Replica mentioned a lot. And as luck would have it, uh, the Berkeley Public Library had a copy of Trout Mask Replica in their collection. So I went and checked it out and took it home. I think on the same day as I checked out uh, Frank Zappa's Overnight Sensation and Apostrophe. And I liked those two albums right off the bat. Uh, but when I listened to Trout Mask Replica, I suddenly remembered, I don't even like Lizard. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I want to listen to something someone favorably compared to it? And I, I thought it was just awful. Music was not supposed to sound like that. <laughs> but it also wasn't the last time I checked it out. And I don't know if I wanted to figure out what it was, all the cool people liked about it, or maybe it just planted a kernel of something in my brain that wanted to keep hearing it, but I was never done with Trout Mask Replica. And it helped that later on I heard Safe as Milk, and not only is that a, a much more accessible album than Trout Mask Replica, it sort of provides a, a key to the captain's code, if you will, so that Trout Mask Replica starts to make more sense. You have a bit of a frame of reference for it. So any, anyway, this, the way the story ends is that I listened to this album all the way through a few days ago after not having done so for a long time, and I still didn't understand any of it, but it all made perfect sense. So make of that what you will. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the Captain Beefheart listener credo right there. <laughs> all right. How about you, Rich? Well, first off, Mike, you've had better luck than me at the Berkeley Public Library, because the main thing I remember finding there when I was digging around uh, as a student was uh, Joe Jackson's mediocre 1986 album, Big World. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you even know that album existed? No. Nope. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm much less of a Zappa person uh, than than the three of you. I've heard like seven or eight of his albums, but I think that's like 0.5% of Zappa albums uh, in total or something. <laughs> Um, I bought Trout Mass Replica in college uh, just because of its reputation, but I was actually scared to listen to it for about 10 years and just let it sit unplayed in my collection, like like a Netflix disc just staring at me. Wow, that <laughs> reference is already dated. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> Such a dated reference. I am so old. 
then I finally put it on uh, around 2012 or so, and it turned out that the music that the album had influenced, such as uh, XTC, The Fall, and especially Tom Waits, it had at least prepared me for the sound of the album, even if it took a lot longer to unpack the songs, uh, uh, which I've been doing over the course of the last week. Uh, in more recent history, I've been house-sitting at my parents' place in the Bay Area this past week and taking care of their three cats and four chickens, and this has just been the perfect soundtrack to wandering around mostly by myself, slowly going mad. <laughs> but now Mike's here. Yay! <laughs> yeah, Mike and I. Are, so yeah, just to know, Mike is actually here with me in the Bay Area. We're recording this in different rooms, but together in spirit. Oh, I guess it were. Captain Beefheart mentions birds and chickens like an awful lot in the lyrics to this album. <laughs> so Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band, and you know the circumstances that led to the recording of this album. Distant cousins, there's a limited supply, and we're down to the dozens, and this is why. Big eyed beans from Venus, oh my, oh my. Boys and girls, earth people around the circle, mixtures of man alike. Big eyed beans from Venus, don't let anything get in between us. Beam in on me, baby, and we'll beam together. I know we've always been together, but there's more. Well, Captain Beefheart, whose real name is Don Van Vliet, uh, showed a talent for art at an early age. He created clay sculptures from the age of three, supposedly, and at an early age, he was offered a scholarship to study at an art school. But his parents, fearing subversive influences, uh, instead moved the family to the remote desert town of Lancaster, California, to refocus his interests. And in this new environment, his interest shifted into music. He formed a friendship with fellow classmate Frank Zappa over their mutual love of blues records, and the two would eventually begin to record music together. In the tradition of his blues heroes, Helen Wolf and Muddy Waters, Don assumed the name Captain Beefheart, a name taken from an abandoned Zappa-written screenplay titled Captain Beefheart vs. the Grunt People. Don would go on to form Captain Beefheart and his magic band, and the his would later become the. The band would sign a deal with A&M Records. The recording of Diddy Wah Diddy was a minor success. However, as the band began to develop original material, A&M dropped them, claiming that their direction was too negative. Despite this, Beefheart was able to recruit a young guitar player named Ry Cooter, and Buddha Records released their debut album, Safe as Milk, to positive reviews. Uh, Lennon and McCartney both were supposedly big fans of it, but the sales were disappointing. The follow-up album proved to be a difficult process. Uh, disagreements of the direction of the band and Beefheart's own erratic behavior led to lineup changes, and this is where Ry Cooter leaves the band. By this point, Buddha Records had found a market in bubblegum pop and refused to release the planned double album It Comes to You in a Plain Brown Wrapper. And yet another record label jump. Bob Krasnow signed the band to his Blue Thumb label and re-recorded much of the material for the album Strictly Personal. While mixing the album, Krasnell felt inspired to enhance the recording with psychedelic effects such as phasing, uh, allegedly without the band's permission. This angered Beefheart made him eager to make an album that truly represented his own artistic vision. Around this time, Frank Zappa and his manager Herb Cohen were preparing to launch their new label Straight Records with the intention of giving spotlight to unusual artists. Notable artists added included uh, Alice Cooper, Wildman Fisher, and Tim Buckley. 
Zappa agreed to produce the double album for Beefheart and promised him full artistic freedom. By this point, the Magic Band consisted of young musicians between the ages of 19 and 21 years old that Beefheart christened with new stage names. On guitar, you had Bill Harkelrode, who had become Zoot Horn Rollo, and Jeff Cotton, who had become Antenna Jimmy Siemens. On bass, Mark Boston, who had become Rocket Morton, and drummer John French, who had become Drumbo. For consistency, I'll refer to the band members by their real names going forward, mostly because I don't have to keep saying Antenna Jimmy Siemens over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> but Drumbo, I would, I would say that a lot. That is fun. I like Drumbo. <laughs> The entire band moved into a house in Woodland Hills, which is a suburb outside of Los Angeles, and they would spend the next eight months in this house preparing and rehearsing material for the album. A key decision that Beefheart made was to bring a piano into the house for the purpose of composing the new material. This is a curious decision considering that he did not actually know how to play the piano. But nonetheless, he picked out melodies and chords and gave drummer John French the Herculean task of transcribing the material, arranging it, and teaching it to the band. John French's role in this album cannot be understated. Uh, Beefheart had no technical understanding of music theory and generally just came up with piano lines that had no regard for time signature or key signature. So John French had to figure out how to piece all these fragments together um, in the cohesive songs. And he described this process as being like building a house with different sized bricks. Because he would take like a 3-4 guitar part and mesh it with a 4-4 guitar part and have to figure out how to make it all come together. Uh, the living situation at the house became something of legend over the years. Outsiders who happened to visit the house described the atmosphere as cult-like and even Manson-esque. The band was generally not allowed to leave the house, and they put in grueling 12- to 14-hour rehearsal sessions. They barely had enough money to eat and were once even arrested for shoplifting groceries. And he would only let, like, one person out of the house at a time, right, to get groceries in case they all tried to escape? Yeah, he was very paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew the prep for this album was intense, but reading about it, I didn't know it was the freaking Stanford prison experiment. <laughs> no, it was nuts. <laughs> yeah. They also described suffering psychological abuse from Beefheart. He was known to methodically put a given band member in the barrel for a few days to deprive him of sleep and mentally break him down to the point of tears. And I believe the point of this was to, I guess, get them to do whatever he wanted. So he would just have complete control over them. Oh, that's not cult-like at all. Yeah, and he no. was he was like thirty years old. And, yeah, he was ten uh, years older than everybody else in the band. So he yeah, was, so there was like a yeah, so there was a dynamic uh, going on there. And they were big fans of his, so they were very like impressionable and wanted to please him. So it was not what we would call a fair relationship for the most. Yeah, this part. is not the, this is not yeah. the happiest story. The making of this album. <laughs> no, but hey, thanks to all that hard work, the album's recorded in a remarkably short four and a half hour session. Zappa himself was even shocked by how well rehearsed the band was in the studio. The album was released on June 16th, my birthday, 1969. <laughs> and while the critical response was predictably kind of mixed, it did receive a lot of high profile positive reviews from guys like Lester Bangs and John Peel. So for once, Rolling Stone actually, I don't hate for this album. So good for them. I am not at all shocked to learn that Lester Bangs and John Peel liked this album. Oh, John Peel is a huge <laughs> champion, Captain Beefheart. Mm -hmm. I think there was a Rolling Stone cover story from around this time that uh, where they interviewed Beefheart and who uh, coincidentally did not mention much about how this album was made. No, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just sprang fully formed from his head. Well, I think I know like the band members have kind of griped over the years about how like Beefheart took a 
basically most of the credit for this music, even though the band was like really like important in actually forming the skeleton of it. He claimed he taught them how to play their instruments. (laughs) (laughs) And John French received no credit on the album. Because he had left the band by that point. Oh. Yeah, well I, well, I read an interview with John French from more recently when the Magic Band was reformed after Beefheart's death. And the, he said one of the reasons they reformed the band was because he wanted to associate some positive memories with the music. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's funny is that from what I've read, at least with him and Bill Harkle wrote, is that they're, they're very careful about how they talk about him. I don't know if it's like some lingering Stockholm syndrome, but they're, they don't hmm. really trash him in the way that you think someone would in that situation well even that phrasing wasn't like i hate him he's a jerk it's more like he yeah he distances it he says positive memories yeah anyway i I think it might be a desire to like you know whatever the result of like you know those horrible sessions were it did result in some enduring art and i think that's probably partially where they're coming from right yeah all right well before we get into this album let's take a quick break for plugs Hey everyone, if you're enjoying Discord and Rhyme and want to help it get better, faster, and more bulbous, there are a few easy ways. You can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod and sign up for a monthly donation. Even a dollar is amazing. If you're planning to buy anything on Amazon anytime soon, go to discordpod.com and use the buy on Amazon links on our upcoming albums page and we'll get a small cut of anything that you purchase during that session. Finally, help us boost our signal by rating us on iTunes, writing us a review, mentioning us on Twitter, or just generally mentioning us to everyone you know who likes music even a little tiny bit. By the way, hope you're enjoying this music, because it's the last thing you're going to be hearing in 4-4 for a while. With that, back to the show. And we're back. That out of the way, uh, let's just dive right on into this behemoth of an album with track one, Frownland. Here we go. My smile is stuck. I cannot go back to your frown land. My spirit's made up of the ocean and the sky and the sun in the moon in all my conceits. Go back to your land of gloom Where black jagged shadows Remind me of the coming of your doom I want my own Take my hand and come with me It's not too late for you If it's not too late for me That one's a banger. (laughs) Everybody on the floor. So the opening track here drops you just straight into the madness. In our episode for uh, Kate Bush's The Dreaming, Mike mentioned that the opening track to that album does not ease you into the album. Well, guess what? (laughs) Neither does this one. The song kind of just right out of the gate introduces just what the approach of this album is going to be. Rather than having the typical hierarchy of lead guitar, rhythm guitar, and bass, you have each instrument just competing for equal attention, playing independent rhythms and melodies, just with the drums just trying to hold everything together. Uh, but in, in this track, it's interesting because Beefheart's voice actually kind of creates a focal point, whereas the music gets really chaotic near the end. You kind of have something to sort of keep your attention on something. But, uh, you know, I, I will say this song, at least for an opener, it's a happy song. 
<laughs> yeah, his smile is stuck. Yeah, his frown is, is gone. So in the beginning, it's actually almost catchy to me, the herky-jerky guitar, but then it just totally breaks down halfway through where it's just guitars are going in opposite directions. But this is what you're in for, essentially, <laughs> for the album. I like this one a lot. I, I think it's it's difficult, but I find enough to kind of latch on to this song to keep me happy to hear it. <laughs> I always just find it interesting when a band like really like lays it all out there on the first track, because this is about as out there as this album gets. It sometimes matches this level of out there-ness, but it never actually really like exceeds it. This is as weird as it gets. So if you don't think this one's weird, then, hey, you're going to be OK with this album. Yeah, the entire album is is very, very difficult, but uh, I feel like not just this, but the entire first side or most of it just really goes out of its way to weird you out. I think yeah. it's part of the gag. It kind of reminds me of an album like, say, Ween's The Pod, oh, God. Oh. <laughs> which is also a weird album. Strap but on that like, jammy pack is a very... Yeah, uh... <laughs> strap on that jammy pack is the first song on that album, and it beats you in the face with, like, dissonant craziness. That song is hilarious, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is it is kind of beef hearty. It, yeah, it's a, it's a beef heart move. <laughs> see, see, here's the thing about this album. Like, uh, the, I think about ever since I've been listening to it, I think about most of the music I've listened to and I can, and I can identify like beef heart elements in it, even if it mm-hmm. doesn't sound like this album. Mm hmm. Well, you know, in a way, I think this this album might be why when I first got into punk that I was attracted to the more like kind of spiky, angular stuff and why the first XTC album I liked was actually Drums and Wires and not. Mm. Uh, I was thinking about the word angular um, and uh, and it's it's such a rock critic cliche, but yeah. I realized it means guitars that sound like Captain Beefheart. <laughs> yeah. Or who's who's the guitar player again? I don't want to just keep attributing everything uh, is bill harkle road and uh mm-hmm. jeff cotton are both playing yeah okay um anyway it's uh, it's worth mentioning that there's a great half an hour video on youtube that serves as a good overview of how to listen to the album in general uh, and it specifically breaks down this song like all minute and 40 of it it goes through the song sounds chaotic because it goes through seven sections in that minute 40 yeah. and the music itself is both polyrhythmic and polytonal, but actually when you break down the individual parts, they're all playing unusual, but not atonal, melodic and rhythmic patterns. It's it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's like a little rock opera in, in its own way. <laughs> it's beef hearts, Tommy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little Stravinsky-esque in, in that regard. Does it have uh, any orchestral hits? Unfortunately, no. Not yet. I mean, nobody nobody uh, loaded up Frownland into the Fairlight. <laughs> Maybe that was a mistake. Give, give it a little owner of a lonely heart. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think this is a great example of just how important sequencing is to the way a song comes across. Because if this song were tucked away on side four, it would just be another weird-ass Captain Beefheart song. But uh, as a side one track one... It's basically the sound of a gauntlet being thrown. And it, most people don't make it too far into Trout Mask Replica, and it's kind of easy to see why, because it refuses to compromise right from the very beginning and basically tells you 
if you don't like it, leave. <laughs> and it's possible to, you know, like Rich said, you can break this song down and demonstrate how it isn't just random chaos and it's actually supposed to sound like that. And even even Frank Zappa was fooled. I don't know if this was the first song they recorded for the album, but I know that when they first went in to record it, they did their first take and he thought, oh, that, that sounds kind of rough. I, let's, let's have them do it again. And they played it again and it sounded exactly the same. But it's a lot more difficult to, to try to explain why anybody would want to sound like this on purpose. And I won't try to do that here. Uh, but just listening to that clip as we were recording it, I mean, it's it's pretty entertaining. I mean, the way that one guitar just jumps in at one point and just starts going, dun, 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 completely oblivious to the rest of the song. I mean, that's, that's fun. I don't know. Uh, I think uh, in order to better develop an appreciation for songs like this, I think it's worth hearing real, true musical incompetence once in a while, just to remember what that really sounds like, which is why I think we need to include a clip of Hoogie Boogie Land by Complete. Oh, complete. <laughs> He sounds kind of beef hearty in that song. He's he sounds like he's trying to do a beef heart and not quite making it. It's it's funny that this one is first because just by the nature of it being first, uh, you're forced to hear it over and over again. And no matter how chaotic it is, you start to remember it and yeah. just like kind of learn the shape of it. Yeah, with each reattempt, this is what you start with. Yeah, and um, so that's the thing. One fact of life about Trout Mass Replica is that you need to listen to it dozens of times. And this is where I take a step back and acknowledge that music is our drug of choice. And I realize that sounds like if like you know a super cinephile walked up to me and told me that I had to watch like Tark. Tarkovsky's stalker dozens of times, which <laughs> I I love movies, but I I'm not going to do that. So I understand. I understand. But this that's just the kind of album that this is, though. And like in order to properly like get a sense of the shape of it, yeah, y- y- yeah, it's just not what you're used to. Right. I would say the proper number of times to listen to Trout Mask Replica is either one or one hundred. That's like that's yeah. a way to put it. <laughs> Listen to it once because you want to hear it and you want to like, you know, say, I've heard Trout Mask Replica or listen to it a hundred times if you really want to, like, try to get at what they were doing. Any other number in the middle is, you know, not worth it. Yeah. Well, and also to touch on Mike talking about how Zappa had him do a second take and it was the exact same. It's it's worth listening to the Trout Mask House Sessions, which are on the the Grow Fins box set. Because you will hear how they knew those songs. Like, they are just the exact same performances, just instrumental. It's really impressive that that is, as random as it sounds, that is what they rehearsed. And that's what they knew how to play, like, note by note. Anybody have anything else? I just want to say that the uh, there's a 2007 movie with this title, and it has nothing to do with Beefheart, but it's basically a psychological horror film about what it's like to be an anxious person, and it's the most harrowing movie I've ever seen billed as a comedy. So <laughs> watch it today. All right. Well, let's move on to track two here, an acapella piece. The dust blows forward and the dust blows back. There's old Gray with her dove wing hat. There's old Green with her sewing machine. 
Where's the bobbin at? It's toting old grain in a printed sack. The dust blows forward and the dust blows back. And the wind blows black through the sky. And the smokestack blows up in the sun's eye. What am I gonna die? A white flake riverboat just blew by. Bubbles pop big. And a, lick, and a lipstick Kleenex hung on a pointed forked twig. Reminds me of the Bobby Girls. So welcome to track two. After Frown Land, you have this charming little acapella <laughs> improvised sing-songy poem uh, recorded into a portable tape recorder at the house. Uh, the little audible clicks you hear are actually Beefheart hitting the pause button while he thinks of the next line to say. I think that this little lo-fi recording just and just the unrehearsed nature of it just gives kind of a charming little touch to the album. It's these little things that kind of give it an interesting tapestry. You know, I don't really have a lot to say about it necessarily, but you know, there's going to be several of these little acapella pieces, but I think these are these are charming. I really like the acapella pieces on this album because it really puts the focus on Beefheart's like weirdo lyrics, which I kind of like. And also all the like, you know, musical parts of this album are incredibly cacophonous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of nice to have like that all fades away. You just have, you know, just his voice doing a thing. And there's also, I guess, no translation between him and the musicians either. So you don't have that potential <laughs> who created what yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. This feels kind of like the opening credits music to the album for me. I know I compare albums to movies all mm -hmm. the time, but it's just kind of, it, I don't know, that's what it feels like for me, like sort of a scratched up, sort of sepia-toned Don Van Vliet singing into his tape recorder while the credits mm -hmm. like are kind of rolling to the side of him. Um, it's, a, it's a great placement on the album. After like the the like hard cold open of Frownland, then you get the credits. <laughs> yeah, you get something like you get something like Goodfellas. Like that's what Frownland is. Like yeah. you know, slamming slamming down the the car. <laughs> yeah, the car trunk. It's the opening of a Brooklyn Nine Nine episode. <laughs> okay. Up next, uh, track three, Dachau Blues. Dachau Blues, Blues. Dachau Blues. Dachau Blues, Dachau Blues, those are cold Jews, still crying by the burning back in World War Twos. One mad man, six a million blues, down in Dachau Blues, down in Dachau Blues. The world can't forget that misery, and the young ones now begging the old ones, please. To stop being madmen, for they have to tell their children about the burnings back in World War III. And there went our last listener. So, subject matter getting a bit darker here. On this track, the turbulent music actually feels appropriate with the disturbing apocalyptic imagery of the lyrics. This one's kind of. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of hard to say that it's enjoyable to listen to, but I think that's probably part of the point. Um, but on this track, we are uh, graced with the debut of uh, Beefheart's horn playing on the album. Uh, in this case, it's the bass clarinet. Former Magic Band bassist Gary Marker introduced Captain Beefheart to the Ornette Coleman album, Free Jazz. <laughs> 
and this album just blew Beefheart's mind. Probably gave him a sense of, oh, hey, I can do that. Um, <laughs> but because uh, Gary Marker said that it gave him, it's the album where he mistakenly got the idea that he could play a reed instrument. But, you know, technical ability aside, I think that it actually adds an effective touch to the song. It certainly adds a kind of sense of dread that really, I think, works here. Well, it's weird how the more you listen to this song, the more it actually starts to sound like the blues. Like Maybe not in structure or anything like that, but he's he's genuinely singing the blues here. And it's also, you know, it's abrasive and dissonant and not easy to listen to. But, I mean, yeah, dude, it's about Dachau. <laughs> Do you want something pleasant? <laughs> By the way, we should probably note that Dachau is a concentration camp, yeah. just in case anyone doesn't know. Uh, and I, I figure the title arose from a dark pun on like milk cow blues, and the captain just ran with oh, it like he does. I thought about that. Yeah, it just occurred to me yesterday. Huh. Uh, but yeah, it's it's hard to love this song. I, I think, but it makes me realize talking about the horn playing. I think honestly, the captain's horn playing is probably the single biggest barrier to getting into the album. Like uh, you hear these like clanky thing, uh, guitars and weird time signatures, but just having that like free jazz, like uh, untrained soloing on top of it, just like bashes it into your head. Yeah. <laughs> See, for me, it's like the horn actually bothers me less than like oh. the cacophonous, like guitars and stuff. It's like I'm I'm used to like weird dissonant horns and free jazz, but like kind of the rhythms that are getting spit out by the band here are still kind of alienating to me. Trapmaster Replica annoys people in different ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has so many things to annoy you with. Uh and there's there's also I don't know if uh Dan if you were going to mention this at, at any point, but like uh the drums on this album, uh John French had uh taped up his all the the symbols were he had like pieces of cardboard tape to him to to muffle them right so yeah they wouldn't be noisy in the house where they were playing and it creates when you muffle the symbols like that it you know it takes away all the all the air in the mix that the symbols would would usually be taking up so you've got this really kind of closed in uh, claustrophobic sound on top of the already difficult sounding music yeah, I think the drum sound actually kind of alienates me from the music further because it really doesn't sound, you know, crisp. No, it's, it's, it's really claustrophobic. Is that, yeah, it's the right it's word just for big, it. It's just clomping noise. It reminds me of the drum sound throughout uh, Pavement Slanted and Enchanted specifically. Mm -hmm. huh. uh, right. I don't know if they did that, but it, it kind of has that clomping sound. Right, which is another album that I actually always found a little bit alienating. So me too. I think that I think that drum sound just really doesn't let people in. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if like part of that was a reaction to his negative response to Strictly Personal having all sorts of effects all over. That he kind of wanted to just deaden everything and have it sound hmm. kind of flat and just because I know yeah, like and on, on on his subsequent albums he was very intent on add no effects to the album whatsoever. I just wanted to just hmm. you know late seventies they wanted to put reverb and he was like nope want it just dry. <laughs> Which was, you know, in retrospect, a pretty good idea. Yeah, probably actually sound... gives it more timeless. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, like, in terms of just general sound, if you go to, like, late period Captain Beefheart albums, like Ice Cream for Crow from, like, the early 80s, they, they don't sound like they came out in yeah. the 80s. They sound like this. Right. Mm. I want ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. So, let's move on to our next track here, Ella Guru. She know all the colors that nature do. Hi, 
do what you mean and she do what you do. Got something for me, got something for you. She show something. <laughs> this song. That's the catchy chorus. That was kind of my response. Like, oh, finally a fist-pumping chorus. <laughs> Something you can all sing along to. So, hey, we've got a song with kind of a regular pop structure. This song is incredibly catchy for an album like this. <laughs> At this point in the album, to hear this, it's like, oh, ooh. It's basically Love Me Do after Dachau Blues. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> you know I love you. <laughs> the, the interplay of the guitars is, just really comes together into this cool groove, and the the chorus with those chiming guitars and the cowbell just forms that just really neat swaggering rhythm. Apparently, as far as lyrics go, this is just about a female fan who would wear wild, colorful clothes and show up at their gigs. Um, and here we get Jeff Cotton, the guitarist's uh, first vocal appearance in the album, doing the uh, high backing vocals. We'll hear more of him later. But this, uh, this song also features probably my favorite instrumental moment in the album. Uh, right around the, the one minute mark, it goes in this really cool little just side road that's just, I think, one of the best parts of the album. Yeah, this would be this would be just about the weirdest song anybody else ever did. But yeah, on this album, it sounds refreshingly kind of like a song. And I, I also really like that that instrumental break that Dan mentioned. It's some of the first really undeniable evidence on the album that these guys really do know what they're doing. And uh, I've always thought that the name El Guru was some kind of play on the word gorilla. Just the way he says oh, it in the left channel, he's going, hello, guru, hello, guru. But I, I it might have, have been a pig Latin thing or something. Yeah, I, I have nothing to back that up with, but it just... He it, loved wordplay. Yeah, so. it, yeah. it always just struck me like that. Yeah, he might have just been walking around going like, gorilla, gorilla, el guru. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, just, I mean, that's, yeah, that's within the realm of reason. That's something yeah. he would do. I think this is an interesting sequencing choice just because the album starts with like two of the most like intensely dissonant songs on the whole album and like a completely acapella piece. So lots of weird stuff. So when this comes on, your ears have kind of adjusted to the point where it kind of sounds like a song. Uh, whereas I think if like if this like opened the album, it would feel more dissonant and clunky than it is. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it's like, you know, the sequencing like is really intended to like thrust you into this world. So by the time you get to something like this, it almost feels like a normal song because your brain has been rewired by the first three tracks. <laughs> it's like you're dying of thirst. And it's like, here's a fresca. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, How about a fresca? 
Um, so on the um, on the 1988 tribute album to Captain Beefheart, Fast and Bulbous, which you'll you'll learn about what that means later, right. uh, there were only a couple of bands brave enough to take on the Trout Mass replica songs, and one of them was XTC, um, one of my favorite bands, who picked this song, and I'm going to play a clip of it right now. She do what you mean, and she do what you do. Got something for me, got something for you. She shall something. Andy Partridge on vocals? I believe so because I think he just recorded it on his own with Colin Molding, like providing some uh, some backing. But uh, yeah, anyway, first off, Andy Partridge said some very not good things about Israel recently on social media. I just thought I I didn't want to go by without mentioning that. We'll address that when we cover XTC properly, which will be within the next year or so. But yeah, the entire sonic palette of this album, especially the guitar tone, was a huge influence on them. And uh, Partridge said in an interview that one of the things this album taught him was that it was okay to break from the chords and scales you were taught and just do music that sounds freaking wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's the primary Captain Beefheart influence, I think. It gave people the freedom. Sort of like, you know, I think Hendrix said that he heard Dylan and it made him realize, oh, I can sing. (laughs) Like, people heard Captain Beefheart and thought, like, oh, I, I can play stuff that just sounds wrong. Like, I don't have to make everything, you know, perfectly consonant. Yeah, and that makes it and that makes it sound like Captain Beefheart just, like, you know, opened the doors for music to just turn into complete BS. But the thing is that, like, you know, there are smart bands who, like, knew what to do with these sounds and knew how to turn them into catchy hooks and riffs. And XTC are one of them. And there are just countless others. The B-52s, who we just covered. Uh, Listen to, like, uh, the Dead Kennedys, like, debut album, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables. And there's so many just wrong-sounding guitar parts on there that work. Yeah. Well, and like in Gang of Four, you hear that just kind of clanky. I think a lot of what it is is, is like, he was big on rhythm. Like the, To mm-hmm. me, him, the rhythm is more important than the melody, and I know Bill Harkle Rhodes said that when he was transcribing stuff for the follow-up album, he said that he'd kind of discovered that that was the key, was that the the rhythm was really what was driving a lot of the music. And that sometimes the melodies were almost interchangeable. Yeah, the rhythm is, this is a very rhythm-heavy album, I think. Yeah, and I'm a rhythm-centric person, and I dig it, I gotta <laughs> yeah. say. I mean, they're very inventive rhythms. Like, you don't hear this kind of stuff anywhere else. Let's move on to the next track. Hair Pie, colon, Bake One. That's a normal thing to call a song. Uh, another banger. <laughs> I sound like the oldest person ever. I always ask myself before I play any song, is it a banger? <laughs> You know, I played saxophone in junior high. I probably could have pulled this off. (laughs) So here's the deal. Zappa originally had the idea to record the entire album at the band's house to document what he called an anthropological field recording. Uh, Zappa's engineer, Dick, Kunk, I'm not sure how you say his name, uh, Kunk, Kunk, 
Um, he had a mixer that was mounted inside of a briefcase that he would feed into a portable tape recorder that he used to record live mother shows. And Zappa thought that you could easily convert the house into a makeshift studio and use just individual rooms in the house as isolation booths for the musicians. Oh, like we're doing right now. Exactly. Yeah, Mike and I are doing that. <laughs> this is how the sausage is made. <laughs> but he thought it would be good because the band would feel more at home because they were at home. But the idea eventually fell through because Beefheart accused him of trying to make the album on the cheap. So they eventually moved the album to a real recording studio. But this track is one of the house sessions that actually made it onto the album. So what this is, is essentially a roughly mixed rehearsal take of Hair Pie, which appears in a more finished studio version later in the album. And what you're hearing is the band playing in the house while Beefheart and his cousin Victor Hayden, who is known as the Mascara Snake... Of course he was. <laughs> they are playing saxophone and bass clarinet while walking around outside in the garden, hence the bush recording he's referring to at the end of the track. It, it seems that Victor Hayden was no more skilled at his instrument than Beefheart was. Uh, Bill Harkleroad said that he didn't really play the instrument so much as he pushed air through it. <laughs> I'm not really going to talk about the composition until we get to the, the later version of the song. But for me, the real high of this, highlight of this track is actually the spoken word bit at the end between Beefheart and some neighborhood kids. I think it's just one of the funniest parts of the album, just hearing him ask him how, what they thought of the song. And they're just like, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just a little audio verite. Yeah, it's like, the fir- it's like the first moment of Trap Mass Replica interacting with the outside world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> I'm glad they left those little moments in and put them on their record. I think they're fun. But what's interesting to note, though, is those kids are actually friends with Eric Drew Feldman, who had joined the band in 1976. So there's that. What a world it is. Mike, screw this recording. Let's just grab a bass clarinet and a saxophone and wander around in the garden playing it. (laughs) The mics will pick it up. It sounds good to me. No, I love that. I love this one knowing how it was recorded, just imagining the whole scene in my mind's eye. That's really all I have to say about this one, because it's I, I, I mean, as listeners noticed, it's as hard to listen to as the rest of the album. But uh, it's a nice little scene. Yeah, just I just love that. That I love that it was made, mm-hmm. that, that this <laughs> happened. And there's there is audio documentation of it. I'm going to save most of what I have to say about about hair pie until we get to, to bake two. Uh, so for now, I just. In reference to the the Bush recording nature of this track, I'd like to mention uh, Captain Beefheart's Ten Commandments of Guitar Playing, which originally appeared, I'm not sure where or when. Uh, You can find them on the internet in various places. But uh, the third commandment is practice in front of a bush. Wait until the moon is out, then go outside, eat a multi-grained bread, and play your guitar to a bush. If the bush doesn't shake, eat another piece of bread. (laughs) Multigrain. <laughs> it's great advice, Captain. He gave Word. great directives to band members. <laughs> so I'll say about this again, I'll probably talk a little bit more once we get to bake two. But uh, I really like the instrumental compositions on this album because I think to me, the most alienating like aspect of it is actually the captain's voice kind of just going against the music a lot of the time and his like kind of loud screaming vocals over the dissonant music (laughs) like when i'm just hearing the band play weird music like my brain just adjusts to it and it doesn't like jump out at me as like that weird at all because my brain is broken and thus music like this doesn't sound that weird to me it's one less element to get in the way 
Right. I really like the Captain Solo tracks on this album, and I like, you know, the band's tracks. They're actually the stuff I often cite as highlights. Speaking of songs, pretty much everybody agrees are highlights. Let's move on to uh, last song on side one, Moonlight on Vermont. That should be a Ben and Jerry's flavor. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. Made with real beef heart. Hell yeah, that riff. Moonlight on Vermont affected everybody, even Mrs. Wooten Wellis, little nitty, even Lightboard floating with his little pistol showing and his little pistol toting. Well, that goes to show you what a moon can do. So this track and the uh, album's closing track were actually recorded in uh, August of 1968 before the house sessions. And uh, having been written before Beefheart had adopted his new piano-based songwriting style, it's probably not a coincidence that it's one of the most immediately catchy and accessible songs in the album. And if you were struggling along with the album, they kind of throw you this lifeboat here at the end of side one. And this song is fantastic. I mean, it is... I don't know who would argue against this being one of the best songs in the album me no <laughs> no no i'm not gonna astronomy you this time. <laughs> but i just i mean it's just it's a truly catchy song and like just the you know it's, it's recorded in a different studio so it does sound different like you don't hear this drum sound anywhere else in the album and it just it sounds great i love just how sharp and abrasive the guitars are in the song you know this just sounds like the strings are being plucked with a rusty knife and I think a lot of that's because they would play with these metal finger picks that give it that really just like that kind of nasty, rusty sound. The title itself is a reference to the uh, the standard Moonlight in Vermont, which apparently was popularized by Frank Sinatra. And uh, you also, near the end of the song, get references to the uh, old gospel song, Old Time Religion, and the Stephen Reich uh, electronic experimental track, Come Out for the come out to show them section. Speaking of the most inaccessible way to get into an artist. <laughs> yeah, though I, I have to say I know I know come out because it was sampled on the Mad Villain album Mad Villainy. <laughs> yep, oh, right, same. it was. Yeah. Also, it, uh, the song breaks into shortening bread at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right under the uh, first time you get to the uh, that's that just goes to show you what a moon can do. Like they play shortening bread under it. Yeah, Dan, your lifeboat comment specifically reminds me uh, uh, in a roundabout way of the song. Do you all know the song "She Is Beyond Good and Evil" by the pop group? Oh yeah, actually no, I do not. <laughs> Thank you. 
So the song is very Beefheart influenced and it has these like really dreary, unwelcoming verses that are punctuated by this like kind of disco-y chorus and uh, a call a, an old colleague of ours uh, referred to the chorus as a life raft and that's been my go-to term ever since for like a catchy part of an otherwise inaccessible song and i think of the captain and the magic band especially as throwing the listener little life rafts throughout the album and moonlight in vermont is the first one oh, excuse me moonlight on vermont i wonder whose choice of sequencing was actually I yeah if that was all his or if zappa had some choice right Side one really gives you a pretty full picture of the album because you get like two crazy out there songs, like a spoken word piece, a um, weird instrumental, like a kind of normal ish by Beefheart songs. And then this, which is probably about the hardest hitting and most normal song on the album. This would still be pretty avant garde for anybody else. But here on this album, it sounds like classic rock. <laughs> I, I guess context is everything. It does. It has the catchiest riff on the whole album. It stays in a pretty normal time signature the whole time. And you might even find yourself involuntarily tapping your foot to it. It's almost certainly going to be the first song on Trout Mask Replica that you admit to kind of liking grudgingly. And it was for me. Well, Dan, you mentioned hearing Gang of Four earlier. Uh, it, it, I hear a lot of Gang of Four in this riff, especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just love the guitar sound on this. Yeah. Like the way like the drums and the guitar like jump out at you at the beginning. Yeah. Like it's it's way more accessible than the rest of the album. Maybe I'm a boring square, but this is <laughs> easily my favorite song on this album. And I kind of wish they threw more things like this on here. But alas, they did not. And I got a film. There's no cardboard on these drums. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It sounds a lot more open. Yeah. The drums sound like drums. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Uh, side two time. Uh, track seven on for you digital slash CD listeners. Uh, Pachuco Cadaver. When she wears her bolero, then she begins to dance. All the Pachucos start with holding hands. When she drives her shimmy, sisters don't dare to glance. Yellow jackets and red devils. Buzzing round her hair hive hole. She wears her pants like a present. Takes her fancy in the pants. A sedan skims along the floorboard. Her two pipes humming carbon car. Got her wheel out of a B-29 bomber. So believe it or not, this is the album's one single. In France, anyway. I, I do not know this, but I'm going to wager that this single did not chart. <laughs> I, I honestly think it was like a practice run for straight records. I really do. Hmm. I think they, it was like the one seven inch they ever released. This is probably the most upbeat or cheery song I know of with the word cadaver in the title. This one, uh, it's it's another one. That's, there's going to be a lot of these tracks where there's just a lot of just really neat, unexpected turns in it. Uh, 
the there's a, a transition about two minutes in to this this really upbeat kind of almost danceable shuffle that's just really you don't kind of see it coming. Roma sells a blue umbrella, keeps her up off the ground. Round red sombreros, wrap her high tap horse shoes. When she unfolds her umbrella, Pachuco's got the blues. Her loving make me so happy. If I smile, I crack my chin. Her eyes are so peaceful, thinks it's heaven she did. Her skin is as smooth. See, there's your proof, listeners, that it's possible to remember parts of this album. <laughs> Yeah, that part's sketchy. Yeah. I don't have much specifically to say about the captain's lyrics on this album because their impact is really like sort of like impressionistic and in the moment and very much just about how the words sound. But I love she wears her past like a present. I think that's a really great line. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good line. But I'm, I'm pretty much with you on his lyrics throughout this album. Most of the ones that really stick out to me are the ones that are just really weird. Yeah. The, the the fact that it references come out is uh, I think is uh, is interesting because like when you listen to come out like part of the point of it is that the words just kind of lose all meaning like words do when you hear them over and over again and that's yeah. kind of how I think of the lyrics on this album like you're just supposed to listen to how they sound yeah right but I I always just remember Captain Beefheart back on the dust blows forward and the dust blows back yelling me and my girl named Bimbo <laughs> Limbo Spam. <laughs> <laughs> he just decided to throw the word spam in there at the end yeah the, the words it always makes me laugh literally every time i listen to the record i like spam but yeah i don't have a ton to say about this track specifically like that part that you know we played is catchy like it's a kind of a weird groove but it's a groove yeah. and i like it it's definitely one of the tracks that stands out the most on this album i think yeah, there, there are moments where like it's almost like the clouds part and it's like, yeah. oh, hey, <laughs> there are a couple right. moments like that. Yeah. The yeah. life rafts. Yeah. That's, yeah. Another, that's another life raft right there. Yeah. And I guess like also uh, probably got to talk a little bit about uh, the opening like spoken word bit before <laughs> oh, the yes. song. Oh, yeah. A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag is fast and bulbous. Got me? I do got gotcha, you, Captain. <laughs> I kind of do. Like, I, I mean, the words all sound very bulbous. Like, they, they're all like, they all make you like move your mouth like really wide. Yeah. And a squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag, that would be fast and it would be bulbous. <laughs> it, it sounds to me like me. It, it makes me think of like somebody trying to explain to a band or to a team of engineers like what he wants the music to sound like. I need it to sound more fast and bulbous. And that's, like, and that's what he was doing. He was kind of like, just make it sound like. Yeah, it's it's like every producer's nightmares when you have you have the band come in. And it's like, I need I need the guitars to sound more red. Well, and he would say things like play a high note like a low note. <laughs> hey, Mike, I'm going to need this episode to sound kind of pink and zebra striped. If you can do that, I'll, I'll make it happen. Thanks. No, the. Uh, th- this is a really good story. I, I got to get in here because I remember reading it and being like, wow, where he with well, one of the later lineups, he he approached the drummer and said, hey, I got an idea for a drum pattern I want you to work on. So we gave him a tape and said, go and listen to this and, and figure it out. So the guy gets it home and puts it in. And it's just a tape of Beefheart and his wife washing the dishes <laughs> with just running water and the occasional like smashing of pots and pans, but nothing that really be like a rhythm necessarily. <laughs> And that's kind that of stuff is hilarious. 
So let's move on from the cadaver song to the corpse song, because we're in the happy section of the album here. Uh, Bill's Corpse. Didn't even think of that. Conceptual continuity. Okay, so Bill's corpse apparently is a reference to Beefheart's goldfish, which he overfed and died. Um, but Aww. Bill Harkleroad has also taken it as a tribute, I guess, to him, who apparently, given his gaunt, malnourished appearance during the rehearsals, he looked <laughs> like a corpse. <laughs> wow. But... Um, I don't have a lot to say about this song specifically. This is always one I kind of can't really get a grip on. It's just a little too slippery and chaotic for me. Um, but one thing I do want to mention, just in general with the recording session on this song, you kind of hear how Beefheart's vocals are not quite in time with the music at a few spots. And it's apparently because during the recording sessions, Frank Zappa could not get him to wear headphones while doing vocals. He just refused to do it. So... Throughout the album, he is just listening to the music coming through the glass of the sound booth, trying to sing in time with the song. So you're going to hear a few spots in the album where it's sort of a little loose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also, it's 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 hard to tell how these songs are, are supposed to go. Right. <laughs> Can you sing them in time? Yeah, my reaction is kind of like, oh, that's oh, that's why it's difficult and dissonant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not dissonant. Uh, I mean, just polyrhythmic, polytonal. But yeah. Yeah. Rhythmically dissonant. So the songs like this one are one of the reasons like, you know, you go, you look at any like list of like the greatest albums of all time. This is going to be like really high on it. It's just insanely critically acclaimed. But on my own personal list, like I couldn't put it that high. And it's just because there's a lot of songs like this on here, which are interesting but there's like there's not a whole lot to grab onto, and over the course of a double album, there's enough of them that they just kind of wear you down. At least mm-hmm. they do me. This is one of those songs. It's like I can't say anything like bad about it. It's just it's really hard to form any kind of like coherent opinion on it, other than it's some more trout mask replica. Yeah, yeah. And on a 28 track album, it doesn't exactly stand out for any particular reason. Poor fish. I know. <laughs> but poor fish. <laughs> In the case that the song... Well, it's, it, there was an actual dead goldfish, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. 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 Poor fish. <laughs> and this is this is not one of my favorites on the album. It's I think it's it's the first song on the album where you're like, yep, it sounds like a Captain Beefheart song. But it's, there's just not a, a lot in here to grab hold of. But he, he sure does sound upset about that goldfish. Yeah. Well, I think with 28 tracks, and yes, that's the correct number, everyone, uh, we should probably move on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Let's uh, cheer up with some sweet, sweet bulbs. 
Then I grab her bulbs. Oh, just thinking about her bulbs. I wish I had her sweet, 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 sweet bulbs. Sweet, 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 sweet bulbs glow in my latest garden. I think I've reached the point where this sounds like catchy power pop to me. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it's so chimey. Let's give it a more solid drum beat. Come talk freely in the garden of my lady. The harmony smile, the harmony stitch. Only a crow would pick and a chicken would scratch. More birds and chickens. Her lips turned up to kiss. I see you, Phoebe, baby, in your bonnet. So this is just a nice song about gardening. Uh, there's a garden at the house, and uh, Captain Beefheart actually tended the garden, and he wrote a song about it. So this is kind of like the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Our House of the album. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't have a whole lot of it. It's a really kind of catchy guitar line, um, and I like how it sort of becomes just more deconstructed by the end of it where it's just the bottom falls out from it with that lone guitar line just kind of holding it together but uh it's a good one it's not one that i have a whole lot to say about but i like it this is around the point in this album where i'm gonna have less to say about the individual songs with a few exceptions because we've kind of discussed like the main tricks of trout mask replica and around here is where the songs like they don't get bad but they get to be, it's more Trout Mask Replica, and I kind of run out of unique things to say, which is like, this is a song where it's like, I enjoy listening to it, but I got nothing to say about it particularly. Well, you can also just break down this album musicologically for just ages and ages, and the, the fact of the matter is we're more familiar with like the earlier songs than the later ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And again, I'm not a you know professional musicologist, so I can't start talking about like modes and stuff all that much. I can more just approach it from like, how does it sound to my dumb ears? You no, know, I mean, I'm an, I'm an armchair musicologist and I'm not even going to attempt to try this to break down this album. Yeah. Well, well yeah. the good news is he couldn't either. So, yeah. Right. right. <laughs> good, good call. Yeah. I, the thing that always stands out to me about this song is the way the the very, very beginning sounds exactly like the beginning of Steely Dan's Reelin' in the Years, <laughs> which is, in all other respects, a completely different song. Yeah, that's that's funny. If I can think of a, a band that absolutely wasn't influenced by Captain Beefheart in any way, <laughs> yeah, you picked the one. Well, that's the um, that's your spectrum on. One extreme end, you have Captain Beefheart, and on the complete other end, you have Steely Dan, and all music is somewhere in the middle. Oh, man. <laughs> Where do I lie on that spectrum? <laughs> and I just want to note that Mike and I have duetted on Reeling in the Years at karaoke. <laughs> we have. That, that is a thing that has happened. All right. So let's move on to Neon Meat Dream of an Octofish, which, again, that's a normal thing to call a song. I love that a octofish, not yeah. an octofish. <laughs> Yeah, it's a octafish. Like, of course it is. Lucid tentacles test, enslave, enjoin, enjointed jade pointed diamondback patterns. Neon meat dream of a octafish. Artifact on rose petals, in flesh petals in pots. Fact in feast, in tubes, tubs, bulbs, ingest, 
incest, ingest, ingest, infeast, incest, inspects, inspreckled, speckled, speckled, speculation, bedlocks, waddling feast, arcade faces frenzy, ceramic fists, artificial decease. So did Bill ascend into a higher octafish form when he died? <laughs> That's my trap mask mythology. I thought he turned into an octorock until he was tragically slain by Link. <laughs> so this one kind of plays like a breathless stream of conscious bit of surrealism with a lot of vivid and kind of explicit sexual imagery uh, and a lot of interesting wordplay. Uh the music is kind of overpowered by the vocals, I think. So I kind of have a hard time really focusing on what's going on underneath just his growling voice. I don't have a whole lot to say. I do think it's interesting that yeah, at the end of Hair Pie Bake One, where he's talking to the kids, like, uh, he, he says that the song they just heard was Neon Beat Dream of an Octafish. But then he goes, wait, no, it's Hair Pie. So even he gets confused which song is which. So that's kind of comforting, I guess. <laughs> yeah. What's going on with the uh, the captain's voice here? Like, is there an effect on it? Or there... It's a Leslie speaker, I'm pretty sure. I never knew that. That makes sense. I always wonder what that whirring sound is. And oddly enough, this was one of the first songs on here that I warmed up to. It's hmm. you know, it's it's a weird one, even for this album, but it's it's weird in a much less in-your-face kind of way than the rest of the album. You know, Beefheart... It, most of the album, he, he, Beefheart's just kind of hollering! <laughs> and... Uh, this one, he's just doing his weird surrealist poetry through a Leslie speaker, and the band is just kind of in the background providing this uh, splattery kind of aural Jackson Pollock painting. And also, it's called Neon Meat Dream of a Octafish, and somehow it sounds exactly like that. I dig it. Basically, this song, uh, there's three things I remember about it. One, it's called Neon Meat Dream of a Octafish. Two, Captain Beefheart's voice sounds weird. And three, he says semen and incest a lot. (laughs) (laughs) End of things I remember about this song. Yeah, one one thing worth revisiting that Mike mentioned, talking comparing this to like uh, a a band just throwing paint around the background, is that you know Beefheart was a painter. So a lot of critics, and I want to get too pretentious with this, but a lot of uh, critics kind of compare his composition style to him like sculpting and painting where he doesn't necessarily know what he's doing musically, but he has these kind of like, I don't want to say like visual ideas of what he wants to do musically. Hmm. So that's kind of what kind of helps give you a sense of what he's trying to do on this album in a lot of places. And Beefheart would eventually actually retire from music full time to, to paint full time. Yeah. In the early eighties. So yeah. Made more money that way. All right, let's uh, keep it moving with track 11, China Pig. Talking about, talking about China Pig, whoa, (laughs) whoa, pick up your China Pig. Oh, <laughs> 
So here's another field recording. Uh, this is a track that's just uh, an impromptu jam at the house with the uh, former Magic Band member Doug Moon on guitar. Uh, as you can kind of hear in the intro, Moon was just sort of playing around the standard blues progression and Beefheart got excited and uh, told him to keep playing. And he actually had uh, Jeff Cotton, uh, the guitarist, grab like some scraps of his old writings. Uh, I guess I should say Jeff Cotton was kind of like, if John French was the music guy, Jeff Cotton was almost like Beefheart's lyric guy who was it was his job to kind of keep track of all of his lyrics and pieces of paper but he's just kind of just picking up all these scraps of lyrics about breaking his piggy bank um one thing that's kind of funny is you know doug moon started playing this blues progression and he got excited and turned to the band and was like why don't you guys ever play stuff like this and they were like (laughs) well we used to (laughs) until you made us stop uh yeah, I like the addition of this uh, lo-fi recording. It, again, it adds more character to the album, but this one in particular I'm not crazy about. It's, it goes on a little too long, and it doesn't do enough musically to kind of really keep me engaged. Um, but there's some nice pig snorks from, from Beefheart in this one. I really, really like this one, but it might just be a reflection of how little I know the blues, which is like almost nothing at all. So I might just be charmed by the mystique, honestly, like the lo-fi-ness of it. There's a good ambience to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this one a lot. It's it's total Robert Johnson, right down to the, the lo-fi one microphone in the middle of the room kind of recording. And I honestly think it's one of the funniest things on the album. He's just <laughs> so racked with guilt over having to break open his piggy bank, like it's an actual pet. Like I, I just think that's a great idea for a song. I'm also just ready for a laid back blues riff at this moment on the album. Yeah. Yeah. I think of this one as kind of like the spoken word bits that are all over the rest of the album, stuff yeah. like the dust blows forward and the dust blows back. It's kind of like a, re- a normal blues progression. It's a normal enough song that the white stripes actually covered it. Oh, that's oh. right. They did. Didn't know about that. I, I didn't know about that, but I did clip a uh, cover from the same tribute album as the XTC one. The Primevals covered this and actually like beefed it up a lot. They beefed up the beef heart. Yeah, it's like sounds like a good like rollicking old timey blues rocker. Yeah, it's like a George Thorogood <laughs> yeah. covered a song from Drum Mask Replica. But really, the only weird thing about this song is just how lo-fi it is. I mean, at its heart, it's just you know a standard blues song, albeit one with funny lyrics. So uh, let's move on. Uh, My human gets me blues from the store. Yeah, it's <laughs> where you get them. you baby dancing in your x-ray gingham dress i knew you were under duress i knew you under your dress just keep coming jesus you're the best dress 
You look dandy in the sky, but you don't scare me. Cause I got you here in my eye. In this lifetime, you got my human gets me blue. Man, this album. <laughs> this album. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things I love about this song is how the opening, after coming out of the lo-fi China Pig, you just get this big boom with a like studio band, and it sounds really like a cool transition. This is one where it might be worth pointing out how Beefheart would also kind of tell the band members how to play their instruments. He, in particular, had uh, the guitarist playing a really aggressive, like just percussive style on this one. You can really hear like that little guitar line where it's just like being just choked out of the guitar and uh, they even had to like play with like just these really high gauge strings because otherwise they just rip the guitar strings just right off this one i really for some reason that guitar line it just uh, imagine like a demented kick line dancer just (laughs) (laughs) going along with it and uh you know this is actually a song where according to john french this is one of the tracks that he composed by just whistling to the band that was his old previous form of teaching songs of I man just whistling. Apparently he's a very good whistler. He could whistle by blowing smoke rings. <laughs> so this is part party trick. That's what this song reminds me of because of that is uh a song by the fall called uh, No Xmas for John Keys. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a great call. <laughs> That's a song that uh, Marky Smith composed by himself and then taught the rest of the band, despite being, by his own admission, completely tone deaf. Which is, is why it sounds kind of kind of odd. That's all rhythm. Yeah. So in, the com- in the complete opposite direction, this reminds me of Yes. Like, specifically oh. close to the edge. Like, all of the crazy, like, jumbly oh. riffing at the beginning of it. Oh. Um, especially the way this song opens. Like, that big, like, studio, like, burst that you get. But one thing it reminded me of, like from my own personal history, actually, is um. So my senior year of high school, I had a hippie English teacher who had us like one time do live class performances with mixed media, which is like uh, a recipe for pretentiousness. <laughs> um, and I chose poetry and music, and so uh, not knowing what to do, being 17 years old, I just basically recited a bunch of word salad over the intro to "Close to the Edge," <laughs> and it occur it occurs to me that I came up with my own poor man's trout mass replica without even hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm a genius basically exactly you are but yeah i like you know the opening like guitar stuff and like the captain's like entrance into this song about yelling about the dancing in your x-ray gingham dress is very <laughs> memorable yeah i like uh, i like i knew you were under duress i knew you under your dress <laughs> and everyone looks naked when you know the world's address it's true yeah they do Let's move on. End of side two. So after this one album to go, this is Dolly's Car.
Yeah, I really like this one. It's just a really tight guitar duet between Harkle Road and Cotton. And the guitar lines are stiff and dissonant, but they're played with such a rhythmic precision and confidence that just somehow makes it work. These chords are wrong. These aren't real chords, but they play them anyway with just, <laughs> just this, this confidence. And they apparently they were so rehearsed that I think Harkle Road said they could just play this in their sleep. This This song with no repeats, just... It's just incredible, incredible to me how like these guys could just memorize this stuff. Uh, the title itself was inspired by a Salvador Dali exhibit that the band visited, which to me is kind of funny to imagine the band going to a museum together. But uh, but they they went to a Dali exhibit and there was uh, Dali's Model T that was loaded with a mannequin and a bunch of painted seashells and moss and things like that, and so they gave it a title. I just see this as kind of transition music, like sort of the band just on a journey to the next LP, because this ends the first LP. Um, mm. Perhaps they're journeying on a raft of, or in Dolly's car. <laughs> I want to second what you said about how it's it's so dissonant, but it's so tight that it, they make it kind of, it doesn't sound like chaos. It sounds like, it almost reminds me of like, uh, you know, 12-tone classical music by like Schoenberg or somebody like that. Oh, they uh, liked, they were into that. I, I bet they were. I'm not surprised by that. And also, just no, just because uh, because uh, this track is like just the guitars. I want to mention here just how much uh, the guitar sound on this album uh, resembles uh, the kind of sound that Steve Albini and Bob Weston would later be using in Shellac. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's because yeah. Uh, they both use they use uh, brass picks in Shellac, similar to the guitarists on this album, but they also have just a very sharp percussive way of playing that could be really traced all the way back to this album. All right. Time for uh, LP number two and the sequel to Hair Pie Bake One, Hair Pie Bake Two. Who'd have thought? is maybe my favorite track on the album there are just so many cool little ideas crammed into this instrumental and once your brain catches up with what the band is doing the song is already moved on to the next section it just keeps going it just keeps pushing forward it's you know again we kind of mentioned when Beefheart doesn't isn't on the track and just lets the band play you can really hear what they could do and 
this is just, I think this is just the, the peak of them as a, as a band together. Like it's just to hear how they can just jump through these different sections and just these weird transitions and make it just sound effortless. Like it's just a gymnastic feat to get through the song. And it's only like two and a half minutes long, but it's just so dense and really impressive to me. Yeah. It's, it's two and a half minutes long, but there's a lot of music in it. Yeah. It's a much more fully baked hair pie than the baked one. <laughs> it's a shame about the title. I will say that. Yeah, yeah. let's not discuss that any further. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm with Dan 100% here. This track is just so full of cool moments that just come one after another after another. And it really is a, a great chance to hear what an impressive ensemble the Magic Band were. They, you know, I think it's partly the way this album was mixed really, but they, they tend to get kind of shoved into the background by the captains shouting on most of the other songs. And it can be kind of hard to hear what they're doing. So I, I like that they get this one to themselves and it kind of makes me want to hear just a a magic band album. Yeah. That's how I feel a lot of the time. Like I've said before, I think like, you know, captain Beefheart's voice can actually kind of distract from some of the interesting things the band's doing and make it sound more dissonant. So I really like hearing them play. This is one of my favorite tracks on the album. Easy. Yeah. Like Moonlight on Vermont is still probably my favorite song on it, but this is a pretty close second. It rules. Yeah. After hearing Bake One and it's like half finished form, like early on, it's it's just uh, I don't know. It's it's incredible. Such a proof of concept for this album. Hearing it's kind of miraculous. <laughs> the complete yeah, hearing the complete version just come roaring out to open the second LP. Like uh, at first you have to get to the point where you're able to differentiate songs on Trap Mask Replica to the point where you realize this one shows up twice. <laughs> I've heard this before. But, but once you do. Yeah, well, it's, it's like this weird kind of deja vu moment on the album. Yeah. Where uh, you don't you don't necessarily consciously know that you've you've heard these riffs before, but they sound kind of familiar. Well, and it sounds so rickety and fragmented the first time you hear it anyway. Yeah. It's almost unrecognizable. It's obscured by all that free jazz, too. Yeah, there's no yeah. horns welling on this one. All right, let's move on. Uh, track 15, Pena. Is that how you pronounce it? Pena. That's how he says it. Yeah, and this one begins with another uh, reiteration of the little like Fast and Bulbous poem, so I'm going to play that right now. Fast and Bulbous. That's right, the mascara snake. Fast and Bulbous. Also, a tin teardrop. Bulbous also tapered. That's right. I love the gradually like sort of revealed poem on this album. It kind of reminds me of the one on Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> Did Beefheart invent the hip-hop album skit? Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. Well, that's, now let's get to the actual song part of the song. Pina, her little head clinking like a barrel of red velvet balls, full pass noise. Trees fill her eyes, turning them yellow like enamel coated tacks. Soft like butter, hard not to pour. Out and join the sun while sitting on a turned-on waffle iron. Smoke billowing up from between her legs made me vomit beautifully and crush a chandelier. Liquid red salt ran over crystals. I need a band-aid in the area side. Oh, well, it was worth it. I mean, it's basically a cartoon set to music. <laughs> yeah, this, this is one where you've got Jeff Cotton again, just reciting one of Beefheart's surreal poems in a hysterically frantic voice. And apparently this is so rough in his voice that he was in tears by the end of the take. It was just so painful that he was like choking. <laughs> Uh, yeah, lots of fun images in this one from the girl sitting in a hot waffle iron to the narrator vomiting beautifully. That uh, is beautiful. I like this. This is this is fun, right? <laughs> you sure clipped a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. 
listening to it just now, I, I'm realizing just what a great party album this is. I mean, I'm just sitting here laughing with this music playing. Who's left in this party? <laughs> if you're the B-52s, at least. Yeah, if you're the B-52s or us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they would be more naked. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say about this one. It sounds like they're going for being as annoying as possible. Yeah. And they succeed admirably. <laughs> this is one of those songs I like just for how aggressively annoying it is. Uh, I mean, I like how Beefheart just starts screaming in the background, like, <laughs> just to make the whole thing as difficult as possible. If it were any longer, I'd probably get sick of it, but it works really well as one of the most out there moments on an already out there album. And also, I just love how throughout the album, Beefheart consistently addresses the Mascara Snake as the Mascara Snake, like the the <laughs> is part of his name. And it reminds me of those old Homestar Runner cartoons with the cheat. <laughs> what do you think the cheat <laughs> all right so let's move on to the next track well i seem to have accidentally put in my rapping ronnie reagan tape by mistake <laughs> he did say well a lot here's the real well light floats down the river on a red raft of blood Night blocks out the heaven like a big black shiny bug. It's hard, soft, shell shining, white in one spot well. It's hard place that I'm living, but I'm doing well, well. So this is another acapella song, uh, this time sung in a blues holler style. And, uh, hello. <laughs> Unlike the other acapella pieces on the album, this one's actually recorded in the studio, so it's a clean take without any mashing of the pause button and vocal stammers that you get elsewhere. I like how this one you can just really hear how huge his voice is, just bouncing off of the studio walls. And it's got like a great intensity to it where it has a real authentic feel of just like being in a chain gang. Uh otherwise I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but I do think it's a it's a cool little effective uh addition to the album. I love how huge the captain is in the mix compared with the other acapella tracks. Cause like, yeah, you don't, you never like really get a sense of how like great of a voice he has because the music is so chaotic, but hearing it all by itself, just filling the mix. I love it. This one kind of reminds me of like Ralph Stanley, hmm. like doing something like, Oh, death. Yeah. Oh, Won't you spare me over till another year? Except, you know, a lot more avant-garde than, you know, what Ralph Stanley was doing. I really like a lot of the imagery in this one. Yeah. I like the lyrics about, like, thick black felt birds are flying with capes of solid chrome. Yeah. There's some really cool imagery in this one. I, I don't think it makes much sense, but it's cool imagery. Yeah, I've, I've always liked uh, night blocks out the heavens like a big black shiny bug. Mm. I really like this one just because I think the imagery is so cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to our next track. When Big Jones sets up. Hoy, hoy. Big John pulls out, arms are too small, 
See, this one's got a, a great catchy boogie riff. Uh, not sure what the bass is doing. It's sort of just off in its own world. Uh, but this is one of the few songs in the album where the band just really kind of rides on one groove with a, a few interruptions uh, for the whole song. And uh, one of the things that strikes me is with that kind of unaccompanied sax solo is it, to me it sounds a lot like some of the atonal stuff that the mothers were doing around this time uh, it sounds like it's straight off of weasels rip my flesh to yeah, me it really does yeah you know, like prelude to the afternoon of a sexually aroused gas mask yeah <laughs> i'm gonna bring up xtc again that intro the it specifically reminds me of the beginning of living through another cuba oh yeah yeah, yeah it kind of does, does. <laughs> Yeah, this is a, like Dan said, this is just a five minute kind of extended vamp of more or less the same riff and chord progression, but in a Trout Mask replica E way. Um, but it, it still makes it really unusual for this album, even if it's strange in a lot of other ways. Right. That actually makes it one of my favorite songs on the record because it does kind of actually groove, which a lot of the songs on here are kind of so obsessed with changing so much that they don't really build any momentum. Hmm. Uh, whereas this one. Like it still doesn't build a lot of momentum and it's still really weird, but I like just hearing the band like get into like a weird groove and ride it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's a catchy riff and it's nice hearing them just groove for a while. But I I also can't help feeling like it goes on a little too long. Like after about three minutes, I've I've kind of gotten the idea. But the slide guitar in this song is just nuts. Mm-hmm. Like so much of the guitar work on this album sounds like somebody who has never touched a guitar before and is just hitting all the right notes completely by accident. And it, it kind of reminds me of uh, Thelonious Monk in that way, the way he approached the piano. And I don't think that's entirely coincidental. All right. Next up is Fallen Ditch. When I get lonesome, the wind begins to moan. When I trip, Falling ditch, somebody wanna throw the dirt right down. Well, I feel like dying. The sun come out, stole my fear and gone. Who's afraid of the spirit with the blues for bones? Who's afraid of a falling ditch? Falling ditch ain't gonna get my bones. How's that full of spirit? How's that clearly the single of the album? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I don't have a lot on this one. Um, 
I don't dislike it, but this is kind of getting into a stretch of the album where we've got some songs that are just sort of there without anything really discernible to make them stand out. <laughs> this is one of those. Uh, yeah, we try to cover every track in great detail on this show, but I think we need to use our Get Out of Trap Mess Replica track free card for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless either of you have anything to say about it. Well, this does yeah. have uh, my favorite intro on the whole album. <laughs> Rocket Morton takes off again into the wind. What do you run on, Rocket Morton? Say beans. I run on beans. <laughs> I run on laser beans. They sound like a couple of kids with a tape recorder just making up little comedy routines on the spot. And when, mm-hmm. when Beefheart leans over and says, say beans, it, it just <laughs> cracks me up every time. I run on laser beans. Yeah, he doesn't even bother to turn the tape recorder off. He just goes, say beans. Cool, yeah. cool beans. Cool, cool beans. Cool, the, cool. The song itself. Cool is, beans. <laughs> the song itself is is fine. It sounds like Trout Mask Replica. I, I'm going to use my get out of Trout Mask Replica card free here. You only get I'm two, you know. Yeah, I think this is a good use. <laughs> like, I'm going to get out of this track right now and just move us on to Sugar and Spikes. By the Crying Shames. <laughs> this is sweeter than wine. I bought a Cry in Shames album last week. Of course you did. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> In sugar, in spikes, in neon lights, in walks, in lights, in chains. Coven smoke, hooping hope, gone the sky rush by. Fall bark and dark, fall back and dark. I steam stale, choose move, broom and pale. Raft. This um, was another song that was written before the house sessions. So to me, it wouldn't sound all that out of place out of Safe as Milk or uh, Strictly Personal. Just a really good, straightforward melody. Uh, genuinely catchy. I, I believe, I know that a section of this was directly lifted from uh, Miles Davis's uh, Sketch to Spain album, which I suspect is the minor key section. I'm not overly familiar yeah. with that album, but I'm not sure which... It's it sounds kind of similar, but very Captain Beefhearted. Yeah. yeah apparently him and Zappa listened to Sketches of Spain a lot as teenagers, so well, it's a good move. It's a great album. Yeah. <laughs> Genuinely catchy, Dan's yeah. pull quote for the sticker for the song. <laughs> Stamp that on there. Oh, and the the drum break <laughs> near the end is something. <laughs> it is it, it's, yeah. it sounds like the drums are being thrown down a flight of stairs. Or John French himself. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> This is without question the song from this album that gets stuck in my head the most. It's just so bouncy and odd. Like it sounds like something out of a strange old cartoon. <laughs> and it I agree it it does sound like it could have come off as safe as milk, but it reminds me the most of uh, a song like Electricity, which I think the the record company didn't want on that album because it was too weird. Yeah. So, well, Electricity, I didn't um, didn't Beefheart literally destroy his microphone singing that one? You can hear him overloading the mic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you've been too weirded out by the music so far on Trap Mass Replica and enjoy this one, listeners, you should absolutely check out the rest of the Van Vliet plus Magic Band catalog because you're likely to enjoy it. But we'll recommend that later. Yeah, you shouldn't yeah. start here, by the way, now that you're this far into the episode. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we should have we should have said that, huh? Oh, well. Also, that's I, I want a second that that. uh that drum solo sort of that's that, that sort of drum solo in the middle is just incredible. And there is a, a similar moment in the Wilco song via Chicago, which is otherwise a completely different kind of song, but the drums do a very similar thing. Watch a man with a face like mine Being chased down a busy street When he gets caught, I But I think my very favorite part of the song is right at the end where instead of just a standard repeat of the chorus, Beefheart decides to just make a series of loud whooping noises. <laughs> and that's that's the outro. <laughs> So listening to you guys talk about this song, like it's definitely clear that this is an above average Trout Mask replica song, but I never really noticed it very much in all of my listening to the album, just because like by this point, I'm just tired. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty I'm buried, so yeah. tired by the time we get to this, because this is pretty close to the end of side three. It, it is track 19 on Trout Mask replica. I see it as like a jolt of caffeine, really. Yeah. Or sugar and spikes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a jolt of spikes. That's gonna be that's gonna be the name of my energy drink. <laughs> and if I have like a single complaint about like Trout Mask Replica, it's that most of the songs don't develop in a traditional way. And the songs are dissonant enough that unless you're paying very close attention, they all kind of blend together. So at this point, it's just like, oh, listen, it's a bunch of like guitars clashing into each other. Captain Beefheart's yelling surrealist poetry over it. And it's just it becomes very hard to differentiate the tracks because the album has a very uniform sound. And that's not really a complaint about the album. That's just speaking for me personally, like it beats me down. And around here is about the time that I'm done. So I may have less to say about the upcoming songs because like I've always listened to this album in sequence. And thus, by the time I get to side four, it's just I'm sitting there with my mouth hanging open, just (laughs) ready for, you know, to throw on like a Janet Jackson album or something so I can, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. I miss you much. That's catchy. Like, I like listening to that. Can I have that now? <laughs> but anyway, unless anybody has anything else on this one, let's nah. move on to uh, last song on side three, Ant-Man B. Is that the sequel to Ant-Man and the Wasp? <laughs> I believe so. 
White ants running Black ants crawling Yellow ants screaming Brown ants longing All those people longing to be free And man be And man be All the ants in God's garden They can't get along Wall still running on That one lump of sugar that they won't leave each other alone. Why do you have to do this? You got to let us through. Why do you have to do this? You got to set us free. Why do you have to do this? So one of the things that's interesting to me is I'm assuming that the song is is really about, I guess, racial conflict, racial strife for the red ants, white ants, uh, black ants. But what's interesting to me is when he kind of talks about real world things, but in his beef heart way, because another idea that comes up a lot in his uh, lyrics is ecological issues. And so to Mm. me, when he tackles these things, but does it in his own language, it's really interesting. This one, I don't have a whole lot else to say about it. it, you do get to hear him play his uh, two saxes at the same time, uh, Roland Kirk style, which is, that's a fun gimmick. Yeah, I, I love how Beefheart apparently just heard Roland Kirk playing multiple saxophones at once and thought, I'm going to do that. Like, I, I think it takes a certain <laughs> amount of hubris to make music like this, because once you start developing an inner critic who demands to know who the hell you think you are, then it's all over. Then you just start a podcast and start criticizing everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, it's it's just, uh, I guess after you've heard so much Beefheart weirdness on this album, hearing this song kick in and there's that bluesy call and response going on between him and the rest of the band. I mean, it's it's almost like Muddy Waters or something. Mm-hmm. Right. This one's almost got a blues structure and the lyrics are about something that like normal human beings can suss out what he's talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Like just a sellout, man. <laughs> <laughs> that would come later. <laughs> I like the brief on why do you have to do this part like it's really jarring since uh, for the most part you're not used to him singing which uh, yeah. which brings to mind uh, well we mentioned them already but another another band this album absolutely influenced is The Fall yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's pretty much their exclusive mode just like speak singing over like just, yeah. you know walls of guitars this is I feel Voxish moment yes <laughs> oh yeah I do feel Voxish all right so we finally made it to side four. We're in the home stretch with track 21, Orange Claw Hammer, which is a pretty normal thing to call a song. I'm always waiting for the Orange Claw Hammer to fall. <laughs> <laughs> a thick cloud called a Piper Cub's tail, a match struck blue on a railroad rail. The old Puff Horse was just pulling through, and a man wore a peg leg forever. I'm on the bum where the hobos run Their breaks with filthy chatter Oh, I don't care, there's no place there I don't think it matters My skin's blazing through and my clothes in tatters And the railroad looked like a Y up the hill of letters This is the final acapella recitation on a tape recorder for the album And this is actually my favorite, I believe Uh, It's got a real... 
I think kind of a power to it. There's a there's a kind of a drama that the others, while they're interesting, I kind of really appreciate the a lot of the imagery in this one, like with the bird with the breast full of worms and things like that. But you also have kind of a not quite clear narrative going on of a impoverished sailor who apparently meets his daughter. But the funny thing about that is, is I believe the the Beefheart's biographer pointed out that there's a inconsistency here. He's been at sea for 30 years, and yet he finds his young daughter. Uh, so I'm not sure how that quite works. <laughs> oh, we should we should tell cinema sins about that. <laughs> <laughs> but the just the theme of like the sailor at home uh, who's been at sea. It, it reminds me a lot of the Slint song "Good Morning Captain," which is. Mm maybe vaguely related but uh there's actually a really good version of the song that uh beefheart played with zappa on a 1975 radio show with zappa on guitar Wow, it's it, it, it's interesting hearing Captain Beefheart try to be Dylan. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but I I enjoy this one. It's another one. It's basically uh, the dust blows forward and the dust blows back part two. I liked it then. I like it now. I'm glad there's not a ton more of these on the record, but you know, I <laughs> yeah, like they're them well spaced they, um, out. Yeah, they're well spaced out. I enjoyed this song a lot more before I realized the melody is basically the theme from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> You're right. It is. Which predates this. It does. Um, And I wouldn't have made the Slint connection, but now that you mentioned them, they definitely were a band with some beef heart in their DNA. All right. If we're done with this one, well, then it's time to check out Mr. Beefheart, man. Whoa. This song is called Wildlife. Uh-oh. I'm done now. No, keep going. (laughs) We're going to have a lip-syncing competition. (laughs) Wildlife, along with my life. I'm going up on the mountain for the rest of my life. Will they take my life? Will they take my wildlife? Will they take my wildlife? We got my mother's father. It ran down all my kin. Folks, I know I'm next. Wildlife, along with my wife. I'm going up on the mountain for the rest of my life. For they take my wildlife. For they take my wife. Wife. For they take my wife. I think we're the only ones left now. <laughs> Who's still listening? Anyone? Nobody. Eh, Time to make it nothing but Duran Duran albums. Finally. (laughs) 
So I'm going to make the bold statement and declare this one of the album's more difficult tracks. Oh, you don't say. It just doesn't quite come together for me. I mean, there's one point where the guitar on the right speaker is just literally going... <laughs> well, now that you sing it, it sounds catchy. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm good, I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually do like his sax solo here, though. It's I think it's at least something to kind of grasp onto, and it's an interesting performance. But other than that, I don't have much else for this song. Yeah, this, uh, I think, marks the moment on the album where I start to feel like I've had enough of Trot Mask Replica. It's, 80 minutes of this stuff is really numbing all at once, and this song is another one that just doesn't really offer you a way in. It just kind of stomps around discordantly. Yeah, well, I'm sure this is just as, like, uh, exquisite and complicated as the rest of the album and like if it was the first song on the album instead of Frownland, like if you swap them then this would be the song that there would be like a 30 minute video like, yeah. analyzing it and this right. would be the one with a movie named after it uh, well I guess it's just called wildlife but yeah like where it is on the album like it, it comes on and it, it he's like wildlife along with my wife do 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 and it's like it, yeah I'm just I don't need to hear this anymore but yeah. I'm sure it's brilliant I am going to use my get out of trout mask replica free card and move on to she's too much for my mirror. That's your last one. You have none left. Oh. Chicago, she's a woman that make her young man a bum. She howl like the wind, make my heart grow cold. Make me long for that little red farm. She make things fly, she make things roll. She got me way over here and I'm hungry and cold. So the album kind of pulls me back with this song. Uh, I like this one. Um, it's funny about it is the guitar riff is really kind of like intense, but the drums kind of like weirdly hold it back a little bit. Like it's it, it kind of like it, it it's pulling back in the momentum with the drums somehow. One thing that's kind of interesting is at the beginning of the track, you get uh, Zappa's engineer Dick Kunk again, uh, who you also hear in Rolling It for the Money. This would be a little bit of vocal teenage heaven right here on Earth. Uh, doing the uh, the intro to the song. Here you would have a famous version of She's Too Much For My Mirror. Note the clever slate. She's Too Much For My or Anybody's Mirror, number two. Told you. But at the end, you also hear Beefheart say, Sh- I don't know how I'm going to get that in there. And that's because he has run out of music to sing his lyrics over. Because he rarely rehearsed with the band, so he would just write lyrics independent of the music and have to figure out how to cram it in there and he just couldn't get it all in apparently <laughs> yeah some of these songs you can kind of tell that he didn't write his lyrics to the music you can hear him trying to figure out how the song is supposed to go while he's singing it and that ends up being the take that's on the album and sometimes you you wish he'd polished it up a bit more but then it wouldn't be trout mask replica it kind of works for me here, though, because it's just it kind of get the album has sort of a meta vibe to it. With yeah. All these little studio interruptions and things. And I kind of like that little touch actually here. Yeah, I think that was I think that was uh, Zappa's uh, 
influence on the album. He kind of wanted oh, to, yeah. to make it. Uh, he wanted to make it seem like this sort of field recording, which and I then, think Beefheart grew to not like over the years. Yeah, he he felt like Zappa was like trying to market him as a freak. I mean, he's on a label with Waldman Fisher. I mean, yeah, come on. <laughs> I think that that's probably true. He probably thought that Zappa was kind of turning him into Wild Man Fisher, which he kind of was. I, th- I think Zappa wasn't. It might have been trying to do that. Yeah, I, I haven't heard the Wild Man Fisher album. So oh, I can't God, <laughs> it is. It is an experience. We should cover that next. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the deal with the slate at the beginning anyway? Why, is there any is it just included as a joke? I, I just. I just think it's funny that it's just not really clever at all. But yeah, I think that just, makes it, but that makes it funny. I think it's just studio goofery. Mm-hmm. Not much, not much to analyze there. No. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Hobo Chang Ba. Oh boy, <laughs> problematic. Steady still is losing feather times a feather. Morning time is Sawwood glow, land in my jaw. Hobo chamber, hobo chamber, hobo chamber. Oh God! Yeah, I'm putting my head to the desk that I'm not sitting at. Hmm. Yeah. So in this one, you have Beefheart playing the role of a Chinese immigrant who has become a hobo. And his attempt at an accent is an unfortunate choice. Is that what that's supposed to be? Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I learned learned that just during the prep for this episode and just listening just now, I was just putting my my palm to my face like, oh, my God. And it's a distracting choice. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I already thought it was like one of his most annoying vocal performances on the album. Well, first I was like, what is he going for? Then like, I was like, uh, oh boy. (laughs) This is the trap mask replica equivalent of the racist Chinese restaurant scene at the end of a Christmas story. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a shame because I do think there's some interesting musical moments in this one, mostly near the end. The first part's a bit loose, but, uh, you know, this one, this song is actually completely impenetrable to be the first dozens of times I listen to it but it's kind of opened up over the years but yeah it's hard to get over the the, <laughs> the, the voice yeah I hate this one because like musically it's just more Trout Mask Replica and vocally it's the most annoying thing ever recorded yeah so uh no thanks <laughs> got a bunch of sleigh bells though yes this is the source of my favorite story about the album actually <laughs> so it exists for that reason it's beefheart ordered 20 sets of sleigh bells for this song but there were only 19 people in the studio so when zap asked him what they were going to do with the 20th beefheart answered we'll overdub it <laughs> that, that's one of the yeah that's one of those comments where you like you let it sit and then it hits you and then you like <laughs> laugh for like 10 minutes yeah <laughs> and meanwhile his band had to steal groceries you gotta have those 20 sleigh bells though <laughs> okay let's move on to the next track the blimp mousetrap replica the blimp the blimp the mothership the, blimp. the mothership Frank, it's the blimp. When I see you floating down the gutter, I'll give you a bottle of 
even saw the lights of the Goodyear blimp and it said Willie the pimp <laughs> <laughs> this is a fun one so the story is that apparently Zappa was mixing a mother's invention track which would later be titled Charles Ives and uh, Beefheart called him on the phone to have Jeff Cotton recite a new poem that he had written and Frank just simply recorded the phone conversation and got the idea to just superimpose the recording over the mother's track so it's probably the most meta track on the album where you use just a real making of the album moment, which is cool. I, I think it's I think it's cool. You get to hear Frank's voice on the record. It reminds me of Fantasy Island, which didn't exist yet. But, <laughs> you know, like the plane, the plane, and I'm thinking, the blimp, the blimp. <laughs> this is this is one of those neat little oddball tracks that you only ever hear on double albums. It, where it's just it, it wouldn't be on a single album, but on a double album, it's just kind of part of the ride. And I, I love the idea of using a phone speaker to simulate being recorded through a fly's ear, <laughs> however that's supposed to work. It's one of the most memorable moments on the album, just for how yeah. unusual it is. It, Jeff Cotton sounds really excited about that blimp, <laughs> which is apparently also the mothership. Was George Clinton listening to this too? <laughs> is this Prague? Is this Prague? <laughs> So I was familiar with this music before I got this album because I had um, an early CD edition of Frank Zappa's Weasels Ripped My Flesh, where um, Frank Zappa had extended that track from the original LP, uh, the track uh, Did You Get Any Anya, which basically included this music. Um, so I knew it there first. And then when I heard this, I'm like, oh, it's the ending part of Did You Get Any Anya from Weasels Ripped My Flesh, except with the guy yelling over it. <laughs> And that works. And, you know, eh, I this is fine, but I think I'd rather just listen to the original Zappa recording. I love the sequencing of this one because uh, this song is the signal to me that the album is nearly over. <laughs> and, and it's a uh, and it's like the blimp is showing up to airlift you from all of this wonderful madness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's like in the distance. So you like you still have to get to it. Well, let's move on to steal softly through snow. Three tracks left. Three. Hundred. <laughs> <laughs> the black paper between a mirror breaks my heart. The moon frayed through dark velvet lightly apart. Steal softly through sunshine. Steal softly through snow. The wild goose flies from winter Breaks my heart that I can't go Energy flies through a field And the sun softly melts a nothing wheel This is one that passed me by for years um, Probably because it's the 26th song on the album And this album is exhausting But it's become one of my favorite songs on the album, actually uh, 
that little descending guitar line, the right speaker uh, near the beginning is just a, a great melody, I think. And again, it's just another one. It's just a lot of just cool little twists and turns to it. Just a lot of neat little memorable moments. But I like it. Yeah, I had pretty much the, the same experience as Dan with this one. It's it's one of the most impressively composed songs on the album, I think. But uh, by the time you get to it, your brain has been mashed into paste and it's hard to distinguish anything anymore. Uh, but if you listen to it on its own, it's really great. And uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, Rich mentioned uh, Yes early on, because this is the one that re- that starts to remind me of Yes. Uh, and they're sort of spikier moments like the uh, yeah. think of like the beginning of like Heart of the Sunrise. Prog mask replica. Yeah. But, you know, I've had this album for like 15 years and I never really noticed this song until like I was preparing for this episode because even though, you know, like Dan and Mike pointed out, it's real good, but I never noticed it because like Mike said, it's just this is so late into the album, but that by this point, I'm always just done. Hmm. Like I've had so much of it like that, you know, I've been beaten down. But yeah, they're right. This is really cool. I like this one. You know, I had a friend in um uh, in college who would listen to albums backwards for that exact reason, mm-hmm. like uh, just to like uh, screw up the sequencing and like, you know, hear the songs that you never hear first. Um, And I think it would be an, it, it might be interesting to do that for this one or it might just completely destroy my brain. I don't know. That's, I've done that with albums just, just yeah. to see how much. uh Yeah. How much I like the stuff at the end. It's good with double albums to just do this too, just to see like Landmines on Broadway. It's like, I don't know this half very well. Yeah. (laughs) I should probably like play play this album on shuffle some and just see like, you know, what if anything stands out to me, because again, I feel like I'm phoning it in on some of these later tracks just because this album is so, so tiring. Yeah. But this is a great song when it comes up on shuffle. All right. Up next, one from the end, track 27, Old Fart at Play. (laughs) It's funny because he made a fart noise. (laughs) It was. Happy was the khaki sweatband, bowed goat pot-bellied barnyard that only he noticed. The old fart was smart. The old gold cloth Madonna. Dancing to the fiddle and saw, he ran down behind the knoll and slipped on his wooden fish head. The mouth worked and snapped all the bees back to the bungalow. Mama was flattening lard with her red enameled rolling pin. When the fish head broke the window, rubber eye erect and precisely detailed. Air holes from which breath should come is now closely fit with the chatter of the old fart inside. An assortment of observations took place. Mama licked her lips like a cat, pecked the ground like a rooster. Well, last we have our titular trout mask. Uh, here we got more storytelling, more surreal storytelling, here with a straightforward narration style, which is really kind of approach he would use on later albums, rather than just howling over the instrumental bed. He would just kind of do a more subdued kind of narration. And he claimed that these lyrics were from an unfinished novel of his, who knows if that's true or not with him. And you remember at the end of uh, She's Too Much From Mirror where he just ran out of music to sing over. Well, here he just keeps talking after the band has ended. 
Uh, I like this one a lot. I think it's really funny. Uh, just weird images that only he could come up with. And again, part of why I like it is because I know what's coming next. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and that's not just the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, there's, that, there's an actual really great song yes, about to come yes. up. Yep. It sounds like a Captain Beefheart song. Yeah, it's a man. Uh, uh, good thing no one made it this far. We sound <laughs> yeah. we sound so at a loss. That's what this album does. Uh, I'm going to does to your mind. I'm going to use my second get out of trap mess replica free card because I know I have something to say about the last track. Track twenty eight, <laughs> Veterans Day Poppy. At last. Like <laughs> high, like a buyer. Veterans Day Poppy It don't get me high It can only make me cry It can never grow Another son Like the one who warned me My days after Rain and warm my breath My life's blood Streaming empty She cries It don't get me high It can only make me cry You're Veteran Day Poppy track this is another song that was recorded during that early session before the house rehearsals so likewise it's another song that's a lot more approachable than the rest of the album uh and it's also some of beefheart's most straightforward lyrics uh deals with the remembrance day in the uk where people buy little red poppies to show their remembrance of soldiers but the the song features uh, gary marker on bass who actually came up with the idea of that really just cathartic boogie breakdown that happens in the middle of the song. And it's funny, the story is they were practicing the song and Gary Marker started playing that bit and him with the idea and the whole band was kind of like, like nervous that Beefheart would <laughs> be like, what are they doing to my song? And indeed he <laughs> ran in there and was like, what is that? And they're like, he, he had this idea and he's like, oh, I guess it's okay. And so it stuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the most satisfying moments in the album. <laughs> but uh I, this is i can't think of a better way to close the album uh just in a nice explosive yet melodic ending and the the that coda at the end is just great like closing credits music to end the album just kind of kind of calming but also eerie and unsettling at the same time That's Trump Mask Replica. 
I love I love Veterans Day, Poppy. Uh, just just that beginning, like uh, the band, like finally, finally seems to be giving you like the rollicking good time that you were waiting for. You're pumping your fist and then it like fades into this post-apocalyptic dirge to close the album. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you say closing credits music, Dan, it specifically brings to mind to me the end of Aguirre, the wrath of God, <laughs> which uh, which incidentally takes place is on a raft, uh, <laughs> a very desolate raft. They're like uh, the, it's covered in monkeys and, you know, they're just drifting and they're not going to find the lost city of gold. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> now what? And that's kind of what I feel like at the end of this album. Like we've torn apart popular music. <laughs> now what? Yeah. I think of this as sort of like your reward for making it all the way through the album. I love how after 75 minutes of just almost wall to wall impenetrable weirdness, you finally get to hear the band break into just some straight up boogie rock. (laughs) And then you get that mysterious coda that sounds like the album's just kind of drifting away. And listening to it the other night, I realized how much it reminds me of uh, Tortoise. And Hmm. specifically, I'm thinking of their song Glass Museum. this comes on i'm just so happy to hear like some normal music yeah (laughs) i'll be getting into this a little bit more in my final thoughts but i think this album like while groundbreaking is just so much that it becomes unpleasant to listen to by the end but this is a great song like i really like beefheart's vocal performance the words are good it's got multiple sections that actually flow like, I feel like, you know, a couple more tracks like this. I'm not saying, you know, we need, we should have ditched all the crazy avant-garde stuff because, I mean, that's the heart of Trout Mask Replica. That's what makes it what it is. But for me personally, I really think it would have been nice to have a few more songs like this sprinkled throughout the album because the band really did have some, like, real, like, rock power. And yeah. it's kind of unfortunate that, that you don't get to hear it very much. Well, it's what everyone else was doing. That's the way I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. All right. And I think that is it. We made it, guys. Well, we're getting to this. It's time for the second half where we do lick my decals off, baby. We'll breeze through that one. (laughs) I would make a funny joke, but I'm just tired now. (laughs) So let's go through some final thoughts. What are your final thoughts on this album, Dan? Look, this isn't an album for everybody. Um, What? But I will say, if your reaction fun just popping it in is that it's just complete rubbish played by a bunch of talentless bombs i urge you to just try to stick with it don't listen to it a million times in a row listen to it give it a few months listen to it again and just it'll slowly start to make some sense i think as you kind of just let it marinate in your brain a bit um this isn't the sort of album you listen to in the convertible on the way to the beach to be honest, when I'm in the mood for Beefheart, I don't usually reach for this album. Uh, there's just far more approachable albums in his catalog and far more digestible albums. But I think this is just undeniably a massive accomplishment and unbelievably influential and important. Um, but again, it's not something that's, you know, something I listen to every day. But again, I like it. All right, let's go to Rich. 
Well, so this is one of those albums where you'll often hear claims that people only like it as like sort of a badge of taste. And uh, honestly, like throughout this podcast, I'd really honestly like to do away with that way of thinking about music because I just find it completely useless and obnoxious. And one of the things that the Frownland analysis video points out about Trap Mass Replica that I love is that this album kind of exists outside of a realm of good and bad. <laughs> I mean, like you can react like very negatively to it because it's very hard to listen to. But like, uh, I don't know, the appeal of the album to me, like transcends like the aesthetic appeal, honestly. Like, I just love like what a singular creation it is. And, and the fact that it was just scrapped for parts by so, so many bands in the decade since. Like you heard the number of bands we were comparing these songs to like XTC, The Fall, The B-52s, Gang of Four, Tom Waits. Uh, yes. And it just goes on and on. It is, it, it's unbelievable. And I, I, I probably won't put this on again anytime soon after listening to it so many times in a single week, but uh, I'm glad that I know it on such a granular level at this point. I'm going to play it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to play the new Carly Rae Jepsen album. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to try to convince anybody out there who's still listening that you should like this album because it's totally understandable if you hate it. I hated it, too, when I first heard it. And it's still not an album that I usually feel like listening to straight through for reasons that I, th I think we've expounded upon pretty well. But even if it never earns your love, and it certainly doesn't attempt to, uh, it absolutely deserves your respect because there's nothing else like it in the world and there probably never will be. Don Van Vliet had a completely different way of doing things and seeing the world pretty much. And we don't get too many people like that. He was also a ruthless tyrant to everyone he worked with. But what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah I, uh, yeah, I wanted to mention I don't endorse the working conditions under which this album was made. And uh, when talking about how great this album is, you have to it is I must emphasize how much you need to like just pay attention to how great the Magic Band are in particular. Yeah. And their input. So this is a hard one for me because like in terms of like creativity, influence, all that kind of stuff. This is like a 10 out of 10 album. And, you know, if you're interested in rock music history, you need to hear it because it's some of the primordial ooze through which a lot of like later music came. But like as an actual listening experience, like I say, I I am just tired at the end of this album in a way that I'm not tired at the end of listening to almost any other album. Like people talk about albums like Tales from Topographic Oceans by Yes as being like long and draining. But I could listen to that album like five times in a row with no problem. But this it's like. I'm just done. Like it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Like I wish that, you know, I mean, I said this earlier, it wouldn't be Trout Mask Replica anymore, but I wish, you know, there was a little bit less of the crazy avant-garde stuff, a couple more songs like, you know, Moonlight on Vermont or um Veterans Day Poppy. But again, that was the way it was then it wouldn't be this album anymore and this album clearly has earned its place in like the rock pantheon because it's a truly unique piece of art that has influenced everybody and their mother so like it's an album that you should sit down and listen to it and if you love it great if you hate it also great it's an important album that does a lot of cool, interesting things, and nothing I say about it is going to change its place in history any. So it's, you know, it's a piece of history. Like, it's definitely worth hearing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
with that, Dan, if you love Trout Mask Replica and want more, or if you think parts of Trout Mask Replica are interesting, but it's exhausting and people are interested in more stuff, like what do you recommend they listen to? Well, if you love this album and you want to hear more like it, I've got great news. The follow-up album, Lick My Decals Off Baby, picks up right where this one left off. <laughs> it is a leaner, it's a much leaner album. It's a single album, so it's not quite as exhausting. I personally don't find it quite as memorable, but also haven't spent as much time with it, so that's probably why. But I would definitely recommend that just to hear it. Um, if you hated this album and never want to hear anything like it again, I've also got good news. Everything else in Beefheart's catalog is far more accessible for the most part. If you want something a little more approachable, I would suggest starting with the debut Safe as Milk, which is just a really great blend of like kind of psychedelic blues. And uh, it's, it would not send out a place alongside your Nuggets hits. <laughs> later period i'm really you know he had a he had a really rough period of a sellout in the mid 70s um but really bounced back in a big way uh creatively where i think he was kind of helped by the popularity of punk and uh kind of found a good middle ground of avant-garde but still being based in some sort of almost normal music um so I'm tempted to just recommend all of his later albums, but I'll be economical and recommend his long unreleased 1976 album, Bat Chain Puller, um, which was shelved because of a fallout between Zappa and his manager, but it finally was released in 2012. And it really kind of sums up what he did the last maybe eight years or so of his career. And it's just a really great uh, overview. And uh, I'd say go with that one. So I really like uh, Lick My Decals Off, Baby. It is a lot like Trout Mask Replica, but I like the production more. It's a lot leaner. Like, I actually think it's a clearly better album than Trout Mask Replica, but it doesn't get uh, as much, you know, play because it's the follow-up, so it wasn't as unique. It's shorter, so it's not as overwhelming. People were like, I've heard this already. But I think if you like the general thing that Beefheart is doing here, I think uh, Lick My Decals Off Baby is actually the superior album. Like, people can fight me on it, but I think it's worth hearing. It was also out of print for years, too. I think that kind of hurts it, too. Yeah, like, it's just, it's very forgotten. But if you like Trout Mask Replica, you there's absolutely no reason you shouldn't also have Lick My Decals Off Baby, because... It's criminal how comparatively unknown that album is compared to this one. I'd like to very much uh, second the recommendation for Safe as Milk, 
And I would even suggest uh, getting into that one first before you dive headfirst into this one as like preliminary listening. Also, if you like that uh, tangled, naughty two guitars fighting each other sound on this album, uh, you'd probably be into uh, Dock at the Radar Station from 1980, which I've come to enjoy quite a bit. And if you like that one, uh, the follow up to that Ice Cream for Crow is also very solid. Yes. Those two albums actually kind of take pieces of the Trout Mask Replica sound, but kind of put it into a more cohesive, coherent whole. So if you like, you know, elements of this, but don't want to be just absolutely swimming in it for a full 80 minutes, those two albums are pretty solid picks. I haven't heard Bat Chain Puller, but just for the sake of mentioning as many Beefheart albums as possible, I very much enjoy its 1978 replacement album, Shiny Beast, mm-hmm. which is the other Beefheart album I own. Uh, I particularly like the song Tropical Hot Dog Night. Yes. Yeah. And not just the title. <laughs> Tropical Hot Dog Night. Like two flamingos in a fruit fight. Every color of day. Whirling around at night. I'm playing this music. So the young girl will come out to meet the monster tonight. Tropical Hot Dog Night. Tropical Hot Dog Night, which was uh, the inspiration, I believe, for uh, PJ Harvey's Meet the Monster. Oh, he just keeps influencing. Yeah. All right. With that, we have reached the end. That was uh, that was an ordeal, but we got there <laughs> together. So thanks to all of our listeners for sticking with us. <sighs> if they did. Well, if they didn't, then they're not hearing this, so... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're the good listeners. We like you. <laughs> not like fans. those other bad listeners. If you're listening to this, you're the ones we like. <laughs> so, next episode, uh, Ben will be back to talk about Setting Suns by The Jam, a considerably more accessible album than this. It is 30 minutes long and really catchy. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that'll be an easy one for me to <laughs> prepare for. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream Trout Mask Replica and other albums by Captain Beefheart at your local warehouse music, as well as the normal places such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon. And we've made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. You can follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. You can follow Dan at Dan S. Watkins. You can follow Rich at Zonetrope. You can follow me at P.A. Maddox. And you won't find Mike on Twitter, though. He took off on the blimp! The blimp! The blimp! The blimp! The mothership! The mothership! Editing is by Rich, and special thanks to Mike for his production skills. See you next episode, and be ever- We did it! Ugh.